What is crack-lacking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favale coming at you without my co-host, Adam Frommel. I am, however, pleased to be joined by one of my favorite people who covers, follows the Celtics, Alex Kungu. Follow him on Twitter at K-U-N-G-U underscore NBA. Great follow on Twitter for the entire NBA, but also for the Celtics. I think, as anyone can tell at this point, I'm probably going to ask him a bunch of questions about the Boston Celtics, who have had a pretty eventful post postseason arc first and foremost though alex how are you doing i'm doing well it's much more free time than i'm used to as a celtic fan it's been very weird watching your knicks in the playoffs while um you know being much better than myself it's been a very weird year man but i'm doing okay thank you for having me uh i don't know i mean watching the knicks was uh was painful so kind of right there with you but look boston i have to I have to kind of start here is how surprising were the, the moves plural this past week? Was it a situation where the Ainge news didn't surprise you, but the Brad Stevens news did, did you see like both of these moves happening? Were you shocked by, by both of them? What was the pulse um, amongst Celtics fans media about this happening? Yeah. So like amongst the fans, everything was like a blind side amongst like media. And then like, you also heard a little bit more from like national side, there was an understanding that this was most likely Ainge's last year um, with the team. Uh, people did understand that. A lot of people were expecting that around the league. What was surprising, though, was the Brad Stevens uh, promotion, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about next. Um, that caught everybody off guard, including myself, because just wow. It's, it's just you don't see you don't you don't see a coach that good. Just leave a leave a job like that and just and like. It was just, it was crazy because, but it, it makes sense. But it was, I, I would say that uh, the Brad Stevens promotion was definitely the thing that shocked all of us around. And I have the most questions about that, but I want to ask you about Ainge specifically first. Do you think it was time for him to step down? Like, was this the independent of what happened after him stepping down, their decision to go to Stevens? Do you think that this was the, the right move for him to step down in general? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the past couple of years, I know, I know the reports have been like he's been having a lot of trouble, like with with like the rigors of the job. He's been there for eighteen years, almost twenty years. It's not a job where those guys usually stay for like two decades. Um, that's not the norm. Uh, so, and I do kind of think it was time for the Celtics to kind of turn turn the page, uh, bring in new people, have a little bit of diverse ideas. Age Age was himself someone that tried to push the edge was open-minded and um his open-mindedness is what got us Brad Stevens in the first place but um I do think at the top there needed to be just someone that could see things a little bit different because we were just out of position now where uh the team has to has to figure out some things really quick and the way and just you know the last one or two years for age it's pretty clear that what he wanted to do did not work out um, and it just seemed like a good t- time now to change and let somebody else figure out what the next step is going to be for the seeds. What did you think about the decisions to go with uh, Brad Stevens? Were you surprised that if this was going to happen, that there wasn't a more extensive or if we gave them the benefit of the doubt and said, okay, well, maybe they did it behind the scenes, that the search wasn't more public. But I think it's pretty clear um, from anything that anyone's heard but also just the way it happened that this was not a situation where they canvassed um, far and wide 
so what, how do you feel about it um, just going to, to Stevens in general? Yeah, so my initial reaction was that it was really shocking. Um, just, you know, like like anybody else, like a coach had just turned to the president of basketball operations, like, what the hell? Um, and then, and then, like, what you hear is like, oh, yeah, but he's kind of, like, been in the room for a lot of these things. Now, I don't know how familiar that is to, like, a lot of coaches. I know, I mean, like, most coaches are there in the draft room, but the way – what 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 Boston's front office right now is putting out here was that yeah he doesn't have actual experience but he's been kind of learning and it looks like him and age have been preparing to do something like this uh, maybe for a little bit longer than any of us realize. Um, so who knows if that's true or if that's just the, the, like the spin they want to put on it now because the backlash that they received for not casting a wide net. Um, but you know we'll see. Like we really don't know. Um, it. It's helpful that it seems like Mike Zarin is going to stay. It also seems like Danny Ainge wants to uh, at least stay around during like the transition, which means that he might be involved in some like the initial offseason stuff. We'll see. Um, but you know, it's a gamble that, that the Celtics are taking because there was, you know, there was a market for that. There were a lot of talented front office execs that could have came in and helped. Um, and you do have to wonder if maybe because they gave Stevens that extension last year, um, that they knew if they brought in a new exec what's the first thing most execs want to do, have their own coach to push their system. So um, there were some talks about that. We don't know what's true or not. Um, it's just been, it's been a whirlwind. But yeah, I was, I was very shocked that we'll just see how, how, how the most around because it's definitely going to be a daunting task for him. I saw, and you already responded to this when Stephen A said that it, it, effectively it seemed like he was annoyed that more players weren't speaking out. Uh, that these jobs weren't going to more people of color. And then it seemed he did take issue with the way that the um, actual search and transition took place. Uh, I don't want to actually whitewash the conversation too much with my own thoughts, but I'm just curious how you felt because that specific, if you have a problem with the way that the search went, I totally like, I'll listen to that, but I don't know how you're supposed to shift like the onus of responsibility here onto the players who are, i.e. the employees as opposed to their employers. Yeah, and I mean, that was, that was mostly my thought as well. Um, it just doesn't make any sense to put the, to put the onus on, on athletes in that way. We expect, them to be have, we expect them to go out there and play and perform at a high level and in and, and part block out noise and focus on like the job that's in front of them. So for them to now also be the persons that have to be the front line when they took out social justice, be the front lines of putting out their money when it comes to those things, be the first line costing themselves money for their protests to raise awareness. Um, meanwhile, the billionaire owners that continue to rack in, you know, like the money and the investments and they don't have to put their face there. They don't have to go out and perform for it. Um, you know, like, I feel like if you want to start the blame and start and start ex wanting change, it has to come from them. And I know uh, Stephen A made a comment about how the Rooney rule may not be that effective because it didn't work in the NFL. Personally, I think the Rooney Rule would work extremely well in the NBA just because it's less people and let, and players have more power in a way where if it, be, if it becomes a thing where players are choosing locations because of diverse front offices, it, it can become a thing where that becomes a thing where teams do as a, as a competitive advantage. And I don't think, I think because of the amount of players that are, that are in the NFL, it's hard for them to organize in that way. So um, I do think Stephen A's heart was in the right place. I just think he blamed the wrong people. 
Uh, but I do, and I do feel that um, installing something like the Rooney Rule would be a helpful tool for the NBA going forward. That's a really interesting take on the Rooney Rule. I didn't think about it like that, and I'm inclined to agree. The other thing about this search, too, and it obviously doesn't apply to that, is just, like, are you surprised? that Like, didn't it kind of seem like if Ainge was going to leave that maybe it would be Mike Zarin that would be next in line for this for this job, and instead it's, you know, they don't even do, like, this search. It's somebody within the organization that essentially gets promoted over him, and I think that took me aback just as much as the Celtics not, you know, doing a more extensive canvas of the league for this job. Yeah, and, and, it, and it does kind of feel like they knew Ainge wanted to retire, which is fine, but it's a key distinction for people to understand. Ainge retired. Ainge didn't get fired. What that means is that it's not like the front office and the ownership wanted to get rid of everyone in the front office, right? Mm. Um, and I think they made decisions based on that, which may or may not end up being a mistake. Because um, I do think you're right, and I do think people are right who question the process and how this worked. This was definitely a situation where I do feel like the team kind of chose this arrangement versus maybe other arrangements that, that could have led to more turnover because they're not interested in as big of a turnover. I think they kind of just wanted a facelift more than um, just a whole cosmetic makeover. This is – and it's not – related to brad stevens's new job really but there was i saw a bunch of you know the jokes are funny but it does seem like the actual opinion or i don't want to say consensus but there are a ton of people outside of the boston media slash fans that think brad stevens effectively failed upward here and again i don't know whether he's qualified for this job but has he become just underrated or misrepresented as a head coach because it does feel like to me personally and i'll throw this out there first that this is more of an issue of people who don't follow the Celtics, didn't watch the Celtics, are choppering in without taking into account context, which was for Brad Stevens, yeah, there was a talent drain. And then aside from the talent drain, there was also um, Jason Tatum getting COVID. You had Jalen Brown getting injured towards the end of the year. Kemba Walker dealing with injuries essentially all year. Um, Even Marcus Smart was injured for a little bit. And I just don't know what else was he supposed to do with this roster and there are you know maybe his biggest blemish is when you look at the past few years is the stuff about him trying to force feed Gordon Hayward down like the throats of his teammates and if that was actually a problem but you even date back to like just years all the injuries they've dealt with and then there were even you know the season where you had Terry Rozier and Marcus Morris in addition to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown taking on larger roles those other two guys are playing for their next contract and in the backdrop of all this is oh you have Horford you have Kyrie you have Hayward I just don't, you know, I'm, I feel like he's become a meme because of the one poll that was tweeted out about would you rather have your choice of player as a building block or Brad Stevens, whatever the actual poll was. I can't believe I forgot what the verbatim was at this point. So has he become, as a coach at least, has he become underrated at this point? It's weird, but I'm, I, I feel like what's happening is that, like, on the Twitter discourse – a lot of it is like polluted and goes off of like game to game analysis. So I do feel like on that specific medium, um, there is a bit of like over over hating, which I think a lot of it comes from the fact that Manix at one point tweeted that he'd rather have Brad Stevens over LeBron James. I think that has done irreparable harm uh, to Brad Stevens' reputation on the Twitter space because um, that's obviously an unfair standard to live up to. Um, but I actually agree with like everything you said, but at the same time, um, as a fan, 
I did kind of feel myself wondering, like, is was it kind of time for a coaching change? Um, I mean, it just, from my point of view, from the outside, I'm not, you know, some plugged in guy. It didn't really seem like one, there was a lot of like change for game, like season to season with his offense, for example. Um, he kind of, he runs like very basic sets that are basically based on, it's essentially without getting too much in the weeds. A lot of it is like players make decisions, player options. And what happens is if players choose to, they can turn it into like just an isolation play at any time, most of the time. So like simple sets like horns and stuff like that can generate into pick and rolls, which then can generate into, you know, like taking, hunting mismatches, um, ISO, blah, blah, blah. And I really didn't think he did that great of a job offensively, like getting getting more off-ball movement for some of his supporting cast, utilizing a little bit more people on the floor. I mean, part of the reason Gordon Hayward left was because, you know, he spent a lot of time on offense standing in the corner. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about, you know, like a six 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 seven combo wing who can pass, create, be, be like a de facto point guard. And you have him sitting on the corner while Marcus Smart is running pick and rolls with Daniel Tice. You know, like that's like like that's the problem. It really is. Um, and I think we do. There was there was a time for now a new mind to kind of come in and kind of like see if we can. Because I, I honestly believe the, the Celtics have much more talent than what they showed. I think certain players that that came on at the end of the year, like Aaron Neesmith, uh, Romeo Langford, the late addition of Evan Fournier, they're actually really offensively versatile pieces. But the way Brad Stevens kind of ran the offense, it was almost like if you're not, you know, Kemba Walker, Jason Tatum, um, or Jalen Brown, you're mostly getting your points off of just spotting up. Mm-hmm. And I think they have enough talent to utilize that a little bit better. Um, and this year was definitely disappointing about the defense. So I side with you more that that was a lot more about this year in general, as opposed to um, it being an indictment on how he, on, on his. Uh, on, on his defensive principles, where I think it's where I think was the strongest point of the coach, um, his strongest point as a coach. So long story short, I I I think he was a good coach. I think if he wanted to come back, he could come back like instantly. Um, but I did also feel like there are, there are there are ways where a better coach could end up lifting this team uh, much higher than what appears to be their ceiling at this point. I guess maybe. Uh, and I don't mean to displace the blame onto like non Celtics fans or basketball people. I, it does, like you said, it feels like that tweet from Manix did irreparable damage to how we, to how we view him, where the media probably propped him up too much. And then like when something immediately went wrong, uh, there was that impetus to want to drag him all the way down. And so as always, there's, there's a happy medium that no one really wants to exist in these days. We had talked, we were hoping that there'd be more updates on the coaching search by now. Uh, there have not been, there's just been like cursory names mentioned. So you don't have to go into those unless there's a name that you are looking at. I'm more curious as to see like, what would you expect from Stevens? Do you think he's going to, you know, will he be looking at his assistant staff and immediately the name there is like um, Jay Laranaga, or do you see, will he go a little bit more outside the box where, you know, will it be looking at a college coach? Um, will he be looking more inside the box at maybe a bigger name that, you know, seeing like Terry Stotts is available now. Does Mike D'Antoni sneak his way into this? at all do you have any guess since i don't think anyone really has a real feel for which direction they'll go in or anything that you're hoping or expecting to see from boston during this coaching search yeah well the one thing i would say about stevens which makes this very fun is that he had a really diverse coaching staff i mean he had you know guys from you know darren ehrman had came in and coached the g league team 
um, Jerome Allen, who's coached at the college level, Kara Lawson, who I think I want to talk about a little bit later, um, Allison Feaster, um, Scott Morrison, Jay Larinega, who's uh, went and interviewed at a couple of different places, Micah Shrewsbury, who's now a head coach in, at college. So he has a lot of diversity in his coaching staff like, and, and people that come from all the different tracks. Like Scott Morrison was a guy that's been there since Doc Rivers was here. Um, and, you know, like a guy like Darren Ehrman was a lawyer who would, who would like turn it, you know, like people who know Darren Ehrman know his story. So my point with this is that Brad, I think is going to be really open-minded about the process. He's going to give a lot of different people chances, even people that no one in the media is talking about right now is my, is my assumption. But I do think he wants to make a decision really quick on it. And I, and the one thing I think is what's, you know, been reported and I think it's fair enough to say is that I do think Boston is going to aim to hire um, a minority candidate for this coaching position. I would probably tend to agree with you there too. And I'm assuming like, this is a situation where I would expect them to have one in place well before the draft and not because the draft is super important to them, but just because like of all the off season, off season prep work that they need to get into. Yeah, exactly. And part of that, um, you know, is why I actually think that the person that's, that might end up being their coach has actually already been a coach with the team already. Which would make a, which would make a, a ton of sense there. Uh, and it would be cool to see Carol Lawson get an NBA head coaching job. Um, I'm assuming, I think the assumption too, is that she's going to at least get, if they're actually going to cast a net, that she will be among the candidates who are interviewed. I would be a little bit surprised if she wasn't. Yeah, I do believe it was reported that she'll, she'll at least get an interview. There hasn't really been anything out right now about like someone leading the search or not leading the search. It was interesting that Jason Kidd withdrew his name from Portland, though I think those were due to issues that existed outside of basketball. Um, but I do, I mean, all things aside, if I had to pick a name for the Celtics, I really do think Carol Lawson checks all the boxes. Um, one from just like a superficial PR optics point of view, it'd be a it'd be a pioneer decision. Like it'd be the first woman, and she and she'd be a black African woman coming from the team that had the first black head coach um, and the first black starting five. Um, it's a it's 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 a neat little bow that can help. Um, I think rebrand kind of like the reputation that they've kind of had um, that that Kyrie kind of poked at um, during during the first round series, and something that the Celtics know is. Is, is is a sensitive topic for them and has cost them uh, free agents before. Um, so I think off top that 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 would be a huge check mark. Then on top of that, I mean, if you if anyone has ever listened to Kara Lawson speak, right. and I don't mean just in terms of the media, just like how she talks about basketball, she sounds like Brad Stevens to the T, <laughs> like a clone, like honestly, like oh, like oh, like a female version of Brad Stevens. Like that's how she talks. She's very mechanical. She's very like process oriented um, next step at a time, put put one foot forward to the other. And she does a really good job commanding a room. And um, the, the closest, you know, my dad used to always say familiarity is the closest ingredient to trust. And you, and I wonder, you know, like Brad Stevens wanting, wanting to get a coach in before, you know, like the draft and a bunch of their free agent decisions have to come in, but, you know, also wanting to have somebody that can like, help transition and maybe, you know, even potentially keep most of his staff because she was also part of that staff. And I know mm -hmm. guys like, 
you know, like Allison Feaster, who's another woman on our staff who's gotten a lot of great reviews. Um, she probably wanted to keep her, Jerome Allen, Jay Larinega, uh, Scott Morrison, if he still wants to stay. Um, that's another consideration that uh, might actually boost Carol Lawson, the fact that Brad probably doesn't want to fire his coaching staff or let right. another coach come in and change his whole coaching staff. And Kara might be the Kara might be the person where she's gonna be she's she's gonna be strong enough of a leader where she's not gonna basically act as like Brad's puppet. Like people will know that she's having her own opinions, but there's still enough of familiarity there where the team doesn't feel like they're going through like a whole different facelift or or he's Brad is at the risk of bringing in someone that doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily listen to him or see the game the same way as he does, which could impact, you know, how the free agents and draft picks he brings in perform. Um, so I would, I would honestly, I would honestly think that Carol Lawson is in prime position. It's only just going to be a matter of are the Celtics willing to, you know, put that spotlight on her and, and she willing to be in that spotlight because it's obviously going to be a massive story if, if, if that were to happen. Yeah. Uh, and I could imagine, and I could imagine there are probably some people at Duke who are very nervous about listening to you talk like this the entire time. I don't know that I would remember an occasion or like an instance where someone took such a high profile job and then left it, but obviously for a better one, just so quickly when you're looking at the collegiate ranks. So that would be another interesting element of all this. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, like, I mean like another candidate, Juwan Howard, he just, you know, He's he's become like a folk hero there at Michigan already. Um, that would be huge, and I know he's he's been involved in a couple of searches. So I think it's fair to say he's definitely looking for for an NBA um, position. Jerry Stackhouse, another guy who did some really good work with Vanderbilt. Um, I really like. I mean, part of the reason why I loved um, Aaron Neesmith was how many like NBA sets Stackhouse had him running in Vanderbilt, and I think he's a very smart basketball mind. But I don't know. I don't. I don't necessarily know how if he if he's gonna get an, a fair shake this time, mm -hmm. uh, just because you know I still think people are people are still waiting. I think there's like some personal stuff there with him first that he has to get over. Um, but yeah, there's gonna be a lot of interesting names like from college, from the NBA ranks. Um, it's gonna be really interesting. Um, I I really don't know who Brad is gonna go with. I don't know who the Celtics want to go with. It so much of it also comes to who Brad is going to be as a president of basketball operations, which kind of makes this nervous, but like exciting. Cause you kind of felt like you kind of had an idea of what Ainge wanted to do with a lot of stuff. Um, most of the time he's conservative. Um, he wants to make the best possible moves. He's not going to pay more than he has to, even if he has the ability to, which, you know, has been a big theme of how he handled the Brooklyn picks and stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's just very principled and, we don't really know how Brad is going to be like that because he's, he's, he's been a coach for eight years. And even before that, those guys are built to win now. Is he going to, how quickly is he going to be able to switch that process from winning the day to, you know, winning the next three to four years. So it's all, it's all very interesting to see. I'm also curious to see how he deals with evaluating players as assets. And I don't want that to be confused as like property or commodities because they're players, humans, but there are going to, I was like, you have to make trades. Uh, he coached so many of these guys, some of them for very long times. I'm just curious, like how he's going to view them. And Marcus Smart might be the big one, someone who's extension eligible. And you get to the point of looking at their cap sheet moving forward. They could try and extend him for 17.2 million as a starting point in the first year of that new deal. 
does he accept that? Is that enough to keep him? Is that too much? Do the Celtics want to pay him? He's all of a sudden kind of thrust into like this weird decision-making process. And I would imagine he has to be attached to, I mean, you look at the core of this team, Jalen, Jason Tatum, and Marcus Smart, like those players specifically, you would have to imagine he's attached to. And so I'm very curious to see how willing he's going to be to shuffle the roster over the offseason. I know that the Celtics aren't too flexible. They start out the year essentially in the luxury tax before even factoring in what they want to do with in, in Evan Fournier. So there's they're limited in theory, but you can always make trades. I'm just wondering, could it be like, does he trust this roster a little bit more than a brand new executive would? Or is he going to be willing to, you know, take a stick of dynamite if that's what needs to be done? Yeah, well, I think I think before even that, the important thing, a big decision is we're going to learn a lot about the Celtics ownership this offseason because it looks like if they were to keep, like if they just try to keep everybody together, like the same exact team, they're going to be in the luxury tax for mm-hmm. like a little bit over $40 million. Um, we have no idea if that, if that team is, if the Celtics ownership is willing to pay any tax at all. Um, they haven't really been tested. We know this, this season, I guess last season now for them, uh, they traded Daniel Tice 100% because of uh, yep. cap. It was it was a cap move, period. It was just to get under the tax. Um, and that was a move that made their team worse um, overall. And it came up really hard. It hurt really bad when Rob Williams was injured in the playoffs and they didn't and they had to play Grant Williams at the five because they had no other options. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to see first there. If they're, if they're going to be a team, if they're going to be an ownership group that says, okay, work we're gonna we're gonna go into attacks we're okay going to attacks then that becomes a very interesting story about what you're talking about Brad Stevens so then he actually has the ability to extend Marcus Smart um even maybe Ralph Williams um and then Evan Fournier as well but if the team doesn't want to actually go into attacks they're trying to act like avoid it the flip side of this is now he might have to start thinking about trading Kemba Walker and Marcus Smart um at the same time and how how he communicates and navigates. I think either way is going to be it's going to be very interesting and telling to see because um, as as we're learning, like as as players get more empowered, it's not just how you present to them to get in the door. Um, how they're how they get how they get exited as well mm-hmm. is very important. Um, the Celtics suffered an irreparable harm and reputation to the way they handled uh, the Isaiah Thomas trade, even though any. NBA fan or analyst would have done that trade 100% of the time. It's the human side of it where the Celtics had failed. And I mean, you know, like <laughs> Anthony Davis didn't want to come to Boston because, in part because of that in some way, whether it was like 5% or 90%, like that mattered to a, to the, to a plan that Danny wanted to put together for three years. It mattered how he handled, how he hit, how he was so cutthroat. So I, I'm going to see, it's going to be interesting if Brad can kind of, um, you know, whether it's negotiating um, an extension or dealing somebody, whether he's going to be able to do that in kind of like a kind and uh, a kind way that doesn't make people feel like they want to burn the bridge when it's done. Um, so I'm so yeah. I mean, like I'm very interested in Brad, but I don't know what his job is going to be this offseason. I don't know if it's going to be the job of clearing house, um, which would you know with with Mike Zarin, that's right where he'll sign, or it's going to be about reloading and how to how to maximize the little cap flexibility that team has so i mean that's a big question to see going forward 
Well, this was, and I had like, it's probably better to talk about from a macro view rather than I had like specific questions about the, you know, Kemba and the Marcus Smart extension and those kind of tie into this. What would you do? What would be your preference for this team? Are you, you know, the first one would be, are you trying to shop Kemba? Like, would you want, do you expect Kemba to be on this team next season? No. Really? I don't, I don't, I don't, I think, okay, so let, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. I think if the Cel- if it was up to the Celtics, he wouldn't have even been on this team last year. Um, wow. I think that I don't I don't I don't think that which, you know, I mean <laughs> I'm trying to be careful here, but I just don't think that the team sees him as a fit as much with the Jays. Like from a human perspective, from a personality perspective, there's no like Kemba is inflappable. Like he's a great guy to have around. Um, he's a great teammate. Nobody has a bad word to say about him. But I think, you know, you're looking at a guy that's, you know, like six foot, maybe ball dominant guard who after, you know, not having a lot of um, injury history in Charlotte came to Boston. And from like the first year, it's been a lot of nagging stuff. It's stuff that, you know, the team is putting on a brave face. Like, you know, Brad Stevens had made some comments that, oh, you know, like his injury in the playoffs more bone bruise, which, you know, not now that he's a GM, we have no idea whether he, those comments being completely a different thing now. We don't know whether that's actually true or whether, you know, he was thinking about down the line how he's going to deal him and how he's going to talk about that stuff. Um, so from my point of view, I think the team has no idea how the knee is anymore. They hope for the best, but they don't expect the best. And I think if, and I think they want to trade him. Uh, I don't know who will, who will take him. And can they, can they, the Mavericks have a, a lightly used Kristaps Porzingis. They might be willing to give you exactly. And then, yeah, but then that's the other thing. If you make a deal like that, are you okay? One paying and still kind of being in the tax. Are you looking to, are you, are you looking to trade him in hope of actually finding a third star? Or are you looking to trade him in hopes of saving money? That's, that's, that's another thing, which again, kind of comes back to, you know, like the seized ownership, but I do think either way they do want to, they do want to trade him. I just think, at this stage, they don't really see. I don't think the fit is there as the Jays get better. Um, and with the injury history and stuff, he just he doesn't match the timeline anymore. It's um, I think they'd like to get younger and maybe find a better complementary third piece. So I don't think he'd be on the team. And Marcus Smart, I'm probably like 50-50 on. Yeah, he's. would you extend him at that number? I believe they could start him at $17.2 million. No. You wouldn't? Would you pay him no, what he's going to make next season, which is 14.3, a little bit more than that? Yeah, because, I mean, right now he kind of – he stagnated as an offensive player. Back then when that contract was there, there was at least, like, a slight hope, like, hey, you know, he's still kind of on a track with, like, Kyle Lowry where, you know, he they started off as, like, backup, like, kind of like role-player guards, you know, develop their three-point shot, even though his contract year last time was horrendous. And this year he wasn't necessarily that great of a shooter either. But I just think, you know, like he's gotten better at finishing. He's gotten better at learning how to draw some fouls. But his best skill is his playmaking, and he just doesn't want to believe that. He really <laughs> wants to be a scorer. And it's part of the reason, you know, like in part, I, I did blame Brad Seaman's offense to this, but like a part of the reason why his offense can be like bad is because it gives players like Marcus Smart like an out to just kind of seek their own offense when they want. And there were so many nights when it's like if either one of like Kemba or Jalen is out, 
instead of his role, instead of seeing his role as, all right, I got to up my playmaking and help everyone get involved and stuff like that. He sees himself like, okay, now I got to replace those 20 shots myself. <laughs> and, and maybe like a 30, 30 year old, 31 year old Marcus who's seasoned and kind of understands his role would be perfect for this team. And the guy, even I would consider paying, paying like uh, his, his like Mac extension value. But the guy who he wants to be right, he's still trying to figure out who he is right now. And and that and during that process, it's not it's it, at times it could be a not great fit with the Jays. Um, so personally, I don't know if I wanted to keep him. I lean, I change a lot from day to day just because of the fact that he is still like you know like he's still in that positive. He he does a lot of things that impact winning. A lot of the dirty work that you know like your stars don't want to do. Mm-hmm. He still does that. He's still a very respect. He's still a very respected person um, in that organization and more importantly in that city. Um, he's mo- he's pretty much a de facto captain. He's been here as long as Brad has. So. Uh, that stuff does matter but at some point like you can't you can't let um a resume keep somebody at a job if that's not if they're not doing their job at the best that they can and i think with marcus smart there's a little bit of that where there's an emotional attachment to him but that emotional attachment is outweighing what he's providing the Celtics on the court so personally i would i would i would look to deal him because I actually think you can get like positive value for him. Like you have a better option of finding a third piece to fit the Jays trading Marcus than you do with Kemba, to be honest. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what has to happen in a Kemba trade because it's I, I don't I don't think you want to be in a position where you have to attach something to him and he has two years and seventy two point six million left on his deal, I think, or seventy three point six, whatever that number is. Uh, but you also you know if it's going to be a challenge trade or you end up taking back a bad player or another bad contract that doesn't his at least has a light at the end of the tunnel maybe uh well not maybe there's two years left on it so i'd just be curious as to what happens in that situation and you know he is theoretically really important to this team when he's healthy so are you even willing to just you know what if the knicks came along and offered to take him into to cap space if you're planning on it seems like you're kind of leaning towards like hey let's really kind of re not maybe not an entire rebuild and you can only rebuild so much because Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum make you so good on their own but it seems like you you do lean towards them making some some substantive changes um would you do that like if someone just came along was offering strictly cap relief or expiring contracts for Kemba Walker is that something that you're at the point of doing right now yeah, because I think with that you could do something like create create a trader trader player exception, which the Celtics are pretty good at that. Um, you could do so. For example, like you could do that, create a, create like a 33, 34 million trader player exception, and then one like you could go to see, like let's see what happens with the Wizards. Let's see what happens with Dame. Um, if you were willing to, you could you know be like, okay, look, we can take. Um, Rally Beal into his TPE, and well, obviously you have to trade somebody. Like, for example, in that scenario, like a Jalen Brown, or you could go another route. You could use that TPE and then go to OKC, bring bring out Horford back. You still have 11 million from the other TPE for Gordon Hayward. Use that, and maybe you have to attach like a draft or something like that. Bring in another piece, and then, you know, what I mean, like there's like there's ways to retool it and use it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think they would actually be completely against that. 
at all. Because I think they would see that as like, all right, we have an asset here. Um, the last one we used to sign um, Evan Fournier. We got his bird rights. We we're able to keep him. He seems like like a, like a movement shooter. The perfect complement to the Jays. Now let's try to find like you know like a playmaking uh, guard or something like that, or you know like a bit like a four to five that can you know be a good small ball five when we need him to, but also play alongside Rob in the starting lineup. Um, maybe that guy's like a John Collins, for example. I don't know. I don't know. But <laughs> I I do think I do think they'd be interested in something like that just because of that type of that type of flexibility um, that it could offer them. And it's much better than potentially being saddled with like bad contracts on multiple years, for example. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, especially now, like if, if it's, if it's, if it's give Kemba to the Knicks and get a 33 million TPE exception or send him to Dallas and deal with Chris Porzingis, I don't know. I think, I'd prefer I think the trade exception, personally. Yeah, but. exactly. <laughs> I'd rather have that. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So to answer your question, yeah, I would definitely like. I think a deal like that would be would be a, a pretty happy uh, medium for the Celtics. Uh, all I could say is hypothetically, R.I.P. to Kemba's knees if he ever ends up playing for Tibbs. Oh um, yeah. So a couple questions for more questions before I get out of here. Whether the Celtics pay the tax, whether they sort of you know trade away pieces the youngsters on this team the 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 picks that were assets that all of a sudden turned into players they're they're all or not they're all but a handful of them like have to become important you need to hit on these or you need them to contribute at least through next year so of that you know we know what when he's healthy what robert williams has become but if you have any thoughts on him i i welcome those i will say as someone who is not watching only the celtics and choppering in for games here and there he seemed he got so much better this year. It really felt like, and there were just moments, even when he was injured, where it looked like his one-on-one defense was a lot better, which is huge for them because they gave away Daniel Tice for nothing. And there's, you know, sort of this void at the center position right now, if he's not going to be it, but you also have Pritchard, Neesmith and Langford. So I'm just curious as to who you view aside from Robert Williams, unless you don't view him as the most important, but who you view as the most important from that bunch, any thoughts or takeaways you have on them hopes you have for them moving forward. Oh yeah, 100% it's Rob. I mean, I think Rob is a unicorn, honestly. Like, he's a rim-running big who can pass. And I don't mean like, like it's not even pass like the way Clint Capella learned how to like hit the corners on the short roll. It's like he manipulates and he can like, he can like be going up for an alley-oop, catch the ball with one hand and find a guy at the top of the key. And like, it's things that like, it's like flashes of Jokic. He's not Jokic. I'm not saying that. But it's like he 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 makes like creative passes like that, along with being able to to make like the simple reads. So like player types like that are not usually like high IQ guys that you can even like run run sets through. You know what I mean? So I think he's he's special and has a chance to, you know, one one, he compliments the Jays, right? Mm-hmm. Um like like Evan. So like he he'll be a great kind of piece to go along with like the Jays and if they have like one a playmaker at, at, at the point guard spot a lob threat a vertical threat like someone that's going to sink the defense um he's someone that they can play through like like you could run DHOs uh from the elbow uh pick and pops he can hit the short roller and stuff like that so I think he I think he's by far like the best young asset they have and they would be smart to lock him up I think I think his injuries um are going to kind of like sour like his 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 per year average but i think something like four years 40 mil where he's making around mle money which seems to be the going rate for like start for like starter quality bigs 
um, something like that with, with maybe some potential uh, bonuses if he hits like a game's play threshold and stuff like that, that I believe, I believe the bonuses can only go up to like 15%. Um, so something like that where like it could potentially make him like 12 million a year. If, I will if say, able to might, hit his bonuses. and sorry to interrupt you there. What might be an interesting barometer for him is what Rashawn Holmes ends up getting in free agency this year. They are different uh, players. Yeah. But like they are kind of similar in what they can do on offense. Rashawn Holmes isn't the same passer, but he has um, a little bit better of floaters. So like if, if he's someone who gets fourteen or sixteen million, and you're Robert Williams, you might be looking at that. And if the Celtics come and look, if you can get him for even four and forty-eight, I'm like I extend him on the spot. I don't know yeah. what the number is where I'd extend, but he might look at that and be like, you know what? I'll just take my chances in restricted free agency. So Rashawn Holmes might be the barometer for like these future bigs that are even, you know, even some veterans where it's like a Clint Capello who's two years out sort of looking at, well, what's the market going to be for me when I get out there? That'll be just a number that I'm watching like a vulture this summer. Sorry to interrupt you there. Oh, no, no, but it's a good point because that is that is a good parameter for him to watch his value. But I also think the Celtics, like, to a certain extent, like, they're not, they're not held over the barrel in the way they were held over the barrel for, like, Jason Tatum's extension. But and at a certain extent, like, you kind of need these type of contracts. It's been a problem for the Celtics. They always had either guys making max money or guys on rookie contracts. And it hurt their ability to, like, make trades, like, honestly. Right. Like, almost like being being too good at contract evaluation where it's like, we value you highly or, we're like, we value you, like, right here. And I think having a guy like Rob with, like, 12, 13 million, having a guy like Smart, 12 million, having a guy like Evan Fournier with his extension, maybe that's, like, you know, maybe that's a little bit higher, like, 15, but between 15, uh, um, 18 million or something like that. Those are the kind of like the pieces that you need where you're trying to put together trades for like the next star that might become available. So I think um, outside of the fact that he is a good player, um, I do think that they might be interested in doing and maybe doing a slight overpay just to have that asset. Um, oh, but to answer like your previous questions, outside of Rob, I think the second most important young player is going to be Romeo Langford. Yes. Uh, he's Yes, I'm so happy you said that. I was prepared to riff about Romeo Langford myself. I'm sorry for interrupting you again. I'm just super stoked. Oh, right no, no, now. no, it's great because like I, I was watching because obviously like he spent the first two years like being really injured, um, and he spent like you know like his first his only year at Indiana like trying to play through an injury which mm-hmm. hurt his draft stock. But I mean, this is a guy who legit has ball handling um, ability. Can w- w- was legit like a shot creator all high school and all college. And I think right now um, it's just crazy to see him win minutes and get on the court because of his defense. Cause that's just not really who we saw him as, but you know, the Celtics were able to get him as a defensive player. Um, we kind of saw what he could, what he could do um, when his jump shot is hitting. I think in their last game, he had 17 kind of reminded me of, it's not a perfect comparison, but his offensive role kind of felt like Lou Dordish in a way. Where okay. it's like he's kind of like he's really active. He's looking for cutters. Um, the jump shot is not there, but like when it when it's there, like it's there. And then he's just a crazy defender who's gonna guard four or five different people with no problem, fighting over screens, um, chasing ninety four. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like Lou Dort in that way. Granted, he's not built like a tank in that way, but um, just kind of like role role wise, and that's a good fit with the Jays. Um, just someone that's going to run around, do crazy things. Um, another another person could be like a P.J. Tucker-esque role. Like, they might actually have that piece already on their team, and, and they just didn't give him um, another year. Like, this is actually going to be his first offseason in the NBA where he's not recovering from an injury. 
and he's actually going to get a summer league. You know what I mean? Like, I think I think he has the chance to surprise the most people. Like, he has a chance next year to come in and be, like, someone that just instantly makes an impact off their second unit that, you know, most people aren't going to realize. So I would say I would say he's second. Um, Neesmith is third just because I think this offseason he's going to get used to the NBA three-pointer. I think it threw him off after coming off his entry in Vanderbilt. Uh, just coming here, no summer league. Um, there was there was no G League red clause during like the first half of the year where he could have maybe been in the bubble, uh, working on the team, like get like getting used to that range. But you know, he figured out how to get on the court on the defensive end, which was huge because a lot of the, a lot of the people that were negative on him coming out of the draft was like, all he can really do is shoot and nothing else. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he became an asset to the team as a defender, as a versatile defender. Um, speaks volumes and then you know like as he gets comfortable with his jump shot I kind of saw like a little bit of like a Gary Trent role for him where I don't know if he's explosive as a create as a scorer as Gary Trent has become but kind of like those first years when Gary Trent was making a name for himself in Portland where he was just kind of a guy where um he was he fouled too much at first but then he figured it out he started he started becoming a good uh pressure release for Dame um as as a as a spot-up shooter and as he got more confident some like the rest of his games are going to come out. And I think that's a path that um, Aaron Neesmith could follow. And then last is Peyton Pritchard, who I think was a, was the rookie who first came and uh, first made an impact for the team that looked like he might be the best. Um, I think some of the stuff like his size, uh, some of his decision-making, like taking, taking those 30 foot threes are really cool and they're good and they look really nice when they go in. Uh, but just knowing when to take them is is also another skill. Um, and there's a lot of times where, you know, like when you're on the court with like Jason Tatum and, you know, like the team the team needs a bucket and you're coming off one pick and roll of like 21 on the shot clock and pulling up from 30 and you're <laughs> like you're a rookie. That's, you know, that's, that, that's not going to win you trust with your teammates. Um, so there are things I like about him. I think he's quicker than people realize, which is, you know, what they say about every white guy. Um, (laughs) he's able like I feel like he's able to get in the paint but his size doesn't necessarily allow him to do much when he gets there he's one of those guys that's going to have to learn how to like anticipate where the the collapsing defense and make the reads before they get there which is something that you know like when he gets adjusted to NBA speed I think something he could be better at so he's the guy who I think like could end up end up being like the most productive one next year but in terms of like long-term value and in terms of like, you know, fits and long-term projections, I think he's the last one in terms of core pieces because unless you're projecting him to be a starting point guard, um, you don't waste a lot of like investment time and player development capital on backup point guards. There's just too many of them in the league. Um, so he would, need, he would need to substantially change his ceiling for me to have like any interest beyond him just potentially being a role piece. I, I think I'm with you in lockstep with your pecking order. I might only consider Neesmith above Langford because they're all of a sudden going to have to make like a contract, like an extension decision on him fairly soon. But there, his defense um, really towards the end of the season too kind of blew me away. And there was this, it was granted it was in the fourth quarter of a blowout game too, but there was just this Nets play at the beginning of the fourth. And there was needed to be like a, basically a triple switch when um, I think Harden, Harden had the ball Harris and Claxton are involved in the action. And then you had um, uh, Tristan Thompson, Neesmith and Langford and just the IQ of Neesmith and Langford on that play together 
knowing like how, and the communication was there, but it was just like, it blew my mind. And then Langford specifically, you mentioned Lou Dort, which is, you know, if he's um, about Lou Dort on offense, the thing about him on defense that really differs, he feels like just so smart away from the ball now too. And I don't know if it helped that he wasn't playing much over the two years, but he seems to know how to use like spacing and angles when he's not covering guys who are necessarily pinballing around the quarter or have the ball in their hand. So I think I'm just most intrigued by his ceiling. Um, I'm curious how valuable the Celtics view him just internally knowing like, okay, he's now he's two years in, I guess next season just ends up being a, an absolutely huge year for him in terms of how they, his development, obviously, but also how they evaluate him against their future. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I know they like him um, a lot and just, a thing, a thing with a, a thing with Langford, which that which you're hitting on, which I think has really helped. Like his feel for the game is actually like really, really high, and it's something that Brad Stevens noted like after just like his first practice with the team. And like you're saying, like a a a a, a theme for me going to this off season is I want the team to think about team building within the concept of who complements Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown the best. So how I evaluate these players is just how they complement him and how they complement them. And I think a guy like Romeo Langford is because of his feel for the game. It's not just that, um, you know, it's not just that he has the potential to be like a, like a, like a creator as a scorer. It's also, he's one of the only guys like that you see like actually making timely cuts uh, to the basket, knowing how to move level with the ball handler when they're driving to the rim, um, knowing how to, like just knowing where to be at all times. And he reads kind of like game, like with a guard, like he sees, he sees the floor in a way that I think helps him in terms of projecting, like how, how much better he can be, even though, you know, it, it's still going to start with the jump shot though. He does have to become at least a confident spot up guy for a lot of the rest of his game and talent to be able to open up. My final question is, so what does the ideal offseason look like if you're, for you, just looking at Boston, like what would you want to see them do? Maybe it's aside from the um, which head coach they choose, but like if you had to identify like a specific, you know, is it you want them to move Kemba, move smart, capitalize on those assets, and then there's, you know, go from there, maybe reload, do be more aggressive in 2022, or what kind of direction? What are, what are you just hoping to see from them on that functional team building level this offseason? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to see like a little bit of a reset where, um honestly it might it might actually hurt going into next year they might actually be like a little bit less team but I'm actually hoping like one they pick like a smart a smart new coach that you know like is a is a fresh new voice that's gonna have kind of different ideas about how to run basketball I want them to kind of um if the owners if if ownership is good with uh using going into attack stuff like that I'd, I'd, I'd like them to use their TPE and maybe bring in someone like someone like a four or five that you know a guy um, like I said earlier can can start alongside Rob and then also play small ball five. Um, the reason they signed Jabari Parker is because they're definitely looking for that piece because it's a good complement to the Jays that way. Um, Grant and Jabari are, are, are the guys in the roster right now who are going to go for it, but I don't have high hopes on either of them to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. So if they could get like a vet or someone new. Um, who could actually do that role? That'd be good. Um, resigning, resigning Evan Fournier is, is pretty important to me. I know some fans, you know, are not sure it's worth it, but to me, I think 
his shooting, his floor spacing, um, just just like his vet savvy and stuff like that, it seemed like a pretty good compliment um, to the to to the Jay. So I'd want him to stay. And then from there, you know, like I I hope they don't have to attach this year's draft pick to move off of anybody because I actually like where they are this year with the draft and they actually have a chance to draft somebody who could be a role player for them on and you know when you're a tax team uh cheap cheap talent means a lot more to you Mm -hmm. um so i so i hope they don't have to i don't i hope they don't have to trade their draft pick to get off any money um then you know like if they go into off if they could come into this year oh oh one more thing i don't want want jeff back is that what is that where this is going (laughs) absolutely not but i do want Jason tatum to not play in the olympics i think that's important (laughs) I would, I would, I would, I would prefer him to take this rest. Cause I mean, then, you know, like then with this off season, um, I do, I know I do want to say trade, trade Kevin Marcus. Um, but I don't know if I need that to be, to be part of my dream scenario. Um, I think I'd be okay. Even if they say for this year, um, you come in again with like a full off season, fully rested. It's, it's, it's more normal now. Um, you have Evan for the full year. Um, a guy like Rob is, uh, locked up. You have a new coach that's going to be able to bring in new things. Another year of development for Romeo and Naismith. And maybe you bring in like a vet, un, like another vet on um, to bring off the bench. We'll see what they do with Tristan Thompson. But either way, like him or like some other big, it's very easy to get uh, back up big. So it's not something that I lose a lot of sleep over. Um, and then I think like you could really make an argument like if you don't get hit with the COVID the way you got hit, um, in a more normal setting with a more normal like development process, like maybe you're actually like a, you know, like a 49, 50 win team instead of what I think what they projected as like a 41, 42 win team. And the difference between like 42 um, win team and a 49 win team is the 49 win team could be like the Hawks right now who got to play the Knicks in the first round and got a chance to battle a Sixers team with their best player hobbled and they have a chance to make a real series and potentially get to the Eastern Conference Finals, not saying that's likely. Um, so it might sound like, oh, well, a 51 team is still an NBA purgatory, but like when you start considering the seedings and the, the, and the, 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 the reality that that stuff can happen, you're still good enough where you're in a position where you can get home court and benefit from potential luck. Like James Harden just went down with a hamstring injury out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I would I, I think there's an argument for them to like kind of like load up a little bit, rest up and try it again. Um, though I would be just as interested in like maybe like a cap a cap reset um, where they may be where they may be worse off this year, but they could be role players in the next offseason. So whichever one, but um, obviously as a as a fan who follows them day to day, the one where they're winning more would be better for my health. <laughs> Yeah, I am. I honestly don't know what direction they're going to choose. The Evan Fournier future will probably be for me, at least from a distance, just the the bellwether for where they. If like if they let him walk, then it's just going to seem like okay. Well, next year is not about uh, trying to win as much as possible, and maybe they're looking at the East, thinking, okay, Hawks, Sixers, Bucks, Nets. What if the Knicks sign somebody? What if the Pacers are healthy? What if the Heat are back? Like maybe they do try and take that contrived step back to load up again in 2022 or something, but that's the, you know, unless we get a Kemba deal before like announced around the draft first, but I'm looking towards free agency and Evan Fournier, because if they just let him walk, I do feel like it's sort of the implication would be that. All right. They they're not as concerned about 
making a push to come out of the East next year as they have been these pa- this past half decade or so. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's going to be the big sign for a lot of people watching this offseason. It's going to be how exactly they're, they're, they're moving because if it becomes Evan Fournier is not even being offered a contract at all, like I definitely expect to see a little bit of fireworks. So that means that they're trying like hell not to pay the tax and they can't do that without moving off at least one of Kemba or Marcus. So just know like if Evan is not being even considered then, which by the, which uh, to, you know, just to, just as a side note, he does seem to have been settling pretty well in Massachusetts. And I think the expectation is that they do resign him, but we'll see. We'll see. You never know. Um, so I'm just interested to see how it all, how, how it all unfolds because despite the limited cap flexibility, it's still actually a really interesting year uh, for the Celtics this offseason yet again. As always, you can follow the latest Evan Fournier news by Googling only his last name and hitting images for anyone who needs to do that. Alex, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I'm sure you know that I'm going to be bothering you after the offseason is, is over or before it's over, but after they've made all these moves so we can sort of tackle the actual outlook with actual evidence. So I hope you will come back. I implore everyone to follow Alex on Twitter at K-U-N-G-U underscore NBA. Once more with feeling, Alex, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and I'll be talking to you soon. Thanks a lot. And hopefully I can come on when Sharif Cooper is leading the Celtics and there's to their summer league title this season. So <laughs> oh, I'm looking day, forward to that. <laughs> days in Boston. If you're harping on the summer league title right now. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> all right, Dan, thanks for having me on, man. All right, let's get started for all the many, many thousands upon thousands of people that are already in the, the hardwood Knox room, AKA shout out to, the one and only Noah. I am going solo this week because Adam Frommel is, as I've mentioned many times before, a traitor. Any live questions that you want to ask, feel free. We'll get to them. I'm going to try to make this a little bit shorter because we're all trying to enjoy Clippers and Mavericks right now. But also we have, as you've all just listened to, if you're listening to this via the podcast, we just had that, had Alex Kungu on to talk about some from Celtics. So we're going to try and keep this little brief, but we did have a bunch of questions from Elbeg, so we'll get to that first. Might as well start with Noah's, since he's here. He asks, is there a potential rivalry in the works here between the Knicks and the Hawks coming on the heels of them beating the Knicks in five games? It's possible. I don't know how what your thoughts are on that one, Noah. I would say maybe Trey Young seems to have become the NBA's you know biggest heel at the moment he was even basking sort of in it during game one against the the Sixers so it seems like he's becoming one of the NBA's bigger villains at the moment which one I think is fantastic for the game and two it opens the door for some sort of rivalries I kind of think though that for the Knicks Hawks thing to be a rivalry either that series needed to have been a classic which you know it was not or the Knicks still need that star to go punch for punch with him. And it wasn't Julius Randle in that series. And so maybe if a certain someone whose name rhymes with Shmamian Pillard ends up in New York and that gives Trey Young someone to go head to head against, but really mostly I think that the series just wasn't, didn't end up being enough of a classic for this to be something that 
people are going to look forward to, you know, in the regular season, seeing them play three or four times, or even waiting for the next playoff series. Do you probably want to see two teams that are on a closer level? Or again, just have that starter go opposite. Noah says, Dame won't end up in New York. I kind of agree just because I'll be a little bit surprised if the Blazers trade him. But I also, what people aren't talking about enough is if Dame wants to leave Portland to have a better chance at winning, that's not New York right now. And I don't think that's a, a spicy take. They Damian Lord and Julius Randle is a core that works, but is it, Damian, is it better than Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum plus the supporting cast? That Portland's put together with Robert Covington specifically, even you know Yusuf Nurkic insofar as he wants to be there, which it doesn't sound like he uh, wants to be there. I also shout out to him for I don't know he has a non guaranteed contract for next season at money that's you know more than reasonable for a starting center, and he was talking about like not coming back. He doesn't really have control over that. I'd like to think that he just didn't understand the language of his contract. Not because he's an idiot, but because if I were an NBA player, I would 100% not you know, look at the nuance of non-guaranteed team option, early termination option, player option. Still, if the Damian Lillard stuff, since it is just kind of in the ether, he wants Jason Kidd to coach the Blazers. Jason Kidd pulled his name out of the running for the Blazers. Whether or not you think that Jason Kidd deserves a chance at coaching again, given his history, or deserved a chance in the first place, I don't think that Jason Kidd has proved he's a good head coach, um, you know, aside from that all that uh, the, the domestic abuse stuff. And that's a different conversation where we have to get into redemption and do people have to atone publicly, privately, depending on what's actually happening. I would argue that atonement in this case needs to happen publicly just because coaching in the NBA, working in the NBA is not a right. And for the victims to see their abusers, if they're consuming this product, that could be really problematic for them. And if they're not seeing this person atone for what they did or have to address it at all. I would imagine that puts more of a a mental drain on them. Didn't expect to go down that Jason Kidd rabbit hole, but the Blazers anyway, they are going to have to confront their future. And Noah says in the chat, CJ is going to be the first to go. I think I agree. If, if it's between Dame or CJ, if that's what people are waiting for, then yes, CJ McCollum's going to, the Blazers are going to make another move with the roster before they trade Damian Lillard, who has four years left on his contract still. And so he can't, I admire what he said about how he would rather, you know, go down swinging in Portland than forge a super team. Uh, He can't, you know, he's going to catch shit and rightfully so if he has four years left on his deal and and wants out after saying all that, I, I would understand it, but you don't get to play the card that heavily say what you did about Paul George and then turn around with four years left on your deal and want out, which is why I actually don't think that he's going to request a trade. He was also giving input or is going to give input on the, the head coach. So why would you force your way out of this situation at the moment? What is interesting about the Blazers, they've made these other moves. And this is, look, you can criticize Neil O'Shea for what happened in 2016. I think it was signing Evan Turner, um, matching the Alan Crabb contract. Everybody between 2016 and 2017, front offices, teams seem to have lost their minds just with the revenue influx from the, from the TV dollars. There were a lot of bad contracts, all of which are um, off the books now by this point, um, or this should be the last year of them if they were signed in 2017. I What they've decided to do, essentially, was keep CJ and Dame together and try and futz and fiddle and make these, I don't want to say really tiny improvements, but significant, not blockbuster improvements, getting Robert Covington, remaining in the the, the Gordon 
Hayward, uh, not the Gordon Hayward, Aaron Gordon sweepstakes. I'm looking at a Celtics question right now and immediately went to Gordon Hayward. But so to sort of wrap up on that, they, they make these smaller moves and they also kind of hold on to some of their younger guys. Uh, the Zach Collins injury, by the way, not talked about enough. He sent in a restricted free agency. He was supposed to be an important part of their team these past few years. Someone who could stretch the floor which he did not prove he could do over a long period of time and protect the rim. And he was pretty good on defense, fairly mobile there too. Anthony Simons came on towards the end of this year. Um, I feel like that happens every single year for him, but you've, you've made these, let's call them medium sized moves. And in doing so now you don't have the assets to go out and make that blockbuster. Should another star become available? One that's an upgrade over CJ McCollum. And that's, what's really tough about this situation, regardless of what they've done is CJ McCollum is really good. It's when you were looking at the Bucks, and I, Chris Middleton is better than CJ McCollum in my eyes, but when you look at the Bucks before the Drew Holiday trade, you were talking about a Chris Middleton, or some were talking about Chris Middleton was an imperfect number two. I tended to disagree, but it was a conversation. What were you supposed to do to upgrade that situation? The Bucks, they mortgaged their future to the hilt. They went out and got Drew Holiday. Time was on there like that. It, it was a perfect storm of circumstances. They were able to get out of it. But what were, when people would talk about trading Chris Middleton or upgrading from Chris Middleton rather than an addition to Chris Middleton, it's so hard to do that because you have to find a player who's available that is an upgrade over CJ McCollum. How many players does that amount to? Honestly, how many players does that amount to? Uh, probably, let's say, let's say there are conservatively 30 to 35 players who are better than CJ in the league. Maybe that's ambitious. You need one of them to become available. What are you then attaching to him. And so I think the move for the Blazers would have been James Harden. If you really wanted to to go all in, could you have found a third team that wanted CJ and then thrown in all the picks, thrown in whatever young players you had and beaten what they got from the Nets? Now, probably not, but it would have to have been that type of situation. Could they technically still do that? Sure, but they've given up some of these other assets along the way, including, you know, they're they're not first round pick strapped, but they have traded uh, they traded this year's first round pick, I believe. I will, I will confirm that uh, in, you know, in a moment. But um, yeah, so that's what's really tough about the Blazers. But we have a speaker request from Noah. I'm assuming on this. So Noah, you're going to have the talking stick, I believe, right now. Hit it. Hey Dan, how you doing? Noah, are you there? Yes, I'm there. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. All right. Okay, so basically, when it comes to C.J. McCollum, too, like, I feel like the Trailblazers are in this weird limbo of which the talent of their players have, basically, the talent of Damon Lillard have made them overachieve for the last four years, basically. And, you know, I agree with your point where C.J. McCollum, you don't really have many upgrades over him that are MVP caliber type um, talents. But in my, in my, my whole thing going into this offseason is, I'm looking at the Warriors. I'm looking at that pick. I'm looking at James Wiseman. I'm looking at the need for the Blazers to somewhat not rebuild totally, but retool and maybe get younger at certain positions. We don't know if Yusuf Nurkic is going to be there long term. Um, if they can get, the, if they could get that pick, flip it for something else, or even just get a package that includes that pick, James Wiseman, and maybe Kelly Oubre, flip CJ McCollum and one of the other younger players. I don't see how that it could be in, you know, help for both teams, both the Warriors and the Blazers to do a deal like that. That's interesting. And I think it brings up also like this just bigger point of can you justify trading CJ McCollum for a return that 
possibly doesn't help you immediately just because Wiseman still needs to develop whoever you would draft with that pick, which could also not convey into 2022. And I think that's the other dilemma they're in is if you trade Damian Lillard, like, yes, you can enter a rebuild because you're going to be rebuilding anyway. But if you trade CJ McCollum, you almost in that situation, I would guess need a, and he would help the Warriors a ton. Imagine CJ on the the Warriors this past year, especially with the defense that they had in place. He, he might've been, I wouldn't have made them, you know, one of the foremost title favorites, but they might've snuck into the title contention circle at that point. I just, I think you would need a third team would be my stance in that situation to send the Blazers something that helps them win now. And so I'm curious as to your thoughts on not just that, but like the, these overarching point of what do you do if you're the Blazers? Because teams that, you know, teams that are going to be interested in CJ McCollum and the the three years and hundred plus million dollars he's left on his deal. Uh, they're probably not going to send you back a player that's an upgrade because they're not going to have that player to offer. And you're going to need to attach other stuff to CJ if you actually want an upgrade. Otherwise you will be looking at the return that you just mentioned, which I'm just not sure, you know, what message are you sending to Dame in that scenario? I think personally for me, like I think the Blazers, they kind of, it's, it's, it's in a, they're in a weird spot where like they don't have the cap space to go out and get somebody in free agency. And they're, main assets that can be traded are few and far between and if you do trade one of them you're basically entering a rebuild mode in that so if they if you were you're right they have would have to be a a three-team trade and like everyone's talking about the knicks and if they if dame would request a trade to the knicks um and the package they'd send it still would put portland in a real rebuilding situation let's say damian lillard for julius randall Kevin Knox and a couple first round picks. That's still a rebuilding situation where now CJ McCollum is your number one option. You know, I still think no matter who, what move the Blazers do, as long as they keep Dame, they will still be better than anticipated because that's just how good Damian Lillard has been in elevating this team. But at the same time, it's, it's either they can, you know, try at this again next year and maybe Mm -hmm. hopefully add some defensive wings because they really do need like a real wing that could, offer more offensive power than Robert Covington did. Um, maybe you hope Anthony Simons develops into more of a I-can-score-off-the-bench role, but I don't think that'll ever happen. Um, but at the same time, I still think that more, most likely we'll see the Blazers just try and run it back with this same, same team with a little retooling done. Yeah, I'm probably in agreement with you too. And you know, People have mentioned the Knicks as a destination for McCollum as well, and he would be interesting there they would still fall pretty short of being this like serious contender with him as basically their pseudo number one guy but that again gets you into the position of what are you sending the blazers that really helps them win at the moment which makes this so so curious and i think you would have to find a situation where it's it's not a challenge trade but can you get any you know and i don't know if the sixers are gonna let's say they lose to the hawks in four or five games in the second round are they willing to move Ben Simmons and how much in addition to CJ McCollum do you have to send out to get Ben Simmons? Because that might be a scenario where I don't know how much you, you know, you don't upgrade your offense in that scenario, though Simmons is a much better playmaker, but you do have Norman Powell, which is sort of the other uh, interesting element here is that you have these three dudes now who are six, four or shorter, and he's going to probably command a contract in the 16 to $20 million range this year you probably shouldn't be paying all these guys. Like it just doesn't make a a ton of sense, but at the same time, you can't really let Norm walk. I know you didn't give up a ton to get him, but Gary Trent Jr. is a really good player. 
Um, and so if the implication he's coming back, yeah, maybe it makes CJ McCollum a little bit more expendable to you. I just don't know where you go out and build a different offer. I even thought, like, is there something they could do if the Thunder don't want to pay Shea? Because he's extension eligible. They're so early in the rebuild. He's going to command a max. But I'm not even sure, like, Shea isn't that, you know, you mentioned their defense. And I, Robert Covington is a fantastic team defender, but I think you're right. They need that guy who could play really one-on-one and give them minutes there. And so if you end up trading McCollum for less than a star – um, maybe like a you know the poo poo platter where it's like two or three players who help you immediately. One of them needs to be like a lockdown wing defender, and I I don't even think you look at teams across the league and see squads that are in that position to consolidate those type of players. I thought about the Pacers a little bit, but they don't have the defensive player we're talking about. They do have like between having Turner, Sabonis, Warren, Lavert. Brogdon, they have a bunch of these really good players, none of whom are superstars. And so maybe they'd be looking to, you know, would you give up Levert plus something out, Turner and Levert for Turner? That would be interesting. I just don't know how much better it makes the Blazers. Yeah, I agree with you there. Well, thank you for the uh, question, Noah, and thank you for listening, as as always. We have a question from Taco J in the chat. Who are the Celtics going to bring in as their head coach? Uh, look, Taco J, if you figure that out before it's broken by Woj or Sham Sharania, please let me know. I'm very curious to see how the Celtics are going to handle this search. Um, you know, is there, uh, you know, how many of their assistants are going to be in the mix? Um, I, I think we can assume at least one of them are going to be, but is Brad Stevens also willing to go off the beaten path? Sort of like, I don't want to say Danny Ainge did with him, but where Danny Ainge hired a, a first time NBA coach, will he go that route, whether he's an assistant or if it's plucking someone from the college ranks? Is he going to go after one of the the flashier names? Um, I'm honestly, I'm so curious. I'm also very curious to see how he views a lot of the players he just coached because this is the team that needs to improve. There's been a talent drain over the past few years. And you have Kemba, you have Jalen Brown, you have Jason Tatum, and you have Marcus Smart. Plus, you know, I would say those are closest to your core guys. And Kemba's probably only in that because his contract is so bad right now. You also have Romeo Langford, Aaron Neesmith, Peyton Pritchard, Robert Williams, and Grant Williams, like sort of as your young asset base. Apologies to um, Shemi Ojolet and Carson Edwards for not including their names in there. But I'm just curious to see what he does in general. This is, I'm not surprised that Danny Danny Ainge stepped down after the past few years uh, of you know, just what's transpired over the past few years there. The Brad Stevens move, I was very surprised by, especially because it doesn't seem like there was this extensive search or at least public search beforehand. I don't, I don't know who they're going to end up going with um, as their coach. I feel like it'll be like a middle ground situation where I don't know if it'll be a first time NBA coach or even a first time head coach, but I do believe they're going to have some head coaching experience. And so I don't think they're going to be in the mix for these, like, you know, you've seen Jeff and Gundy's name tossed around in Portland, uh, Mike D'Antoni's name tossed around. I think it would be more along the lines of, oh, do they look at you know Chauncey Billups as someone? It's a name that would spring to mind there. Uh, so that would be my guess. But I honestly have no feel for what Boston is is going to do, and it's going to. I think the way he handles this head coaching search is going to set the tenor for a lot of what they do moving forward. Because if you go with a first timer, does that is the implication that you're not necessarily as committed to winning immediately. You have Tatum, you have Brown, you keep those guys, but they're also young enough where you don't have to have this sense of urgency. And they just, they have questions. Kemba, two years, 73 million left. Do you look at moving him? Smart's extension eligible. You can sign him for 
starting at as much as 70, 17, excuse me, 0.2 million in the year after next. The two questions are, is that enough? Or is he going to want to enter free agency and see if he can get a better offer? Or the other question is, do the Celtics even want to give him that? Because that is a hell of a lot of money. I think Marcus Smart is one of the most valuable players in the NBA and gets a bad rap. You know, he's adventurous to a detriment on offense sometimes, but his three-point volume helps, and he's quietly shot 35.5% from there over the past three years. But I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for you, Taco J. There's just a ton of stuff, moving parts going on in Boston that I don't think we fully understand. And um, since you have the benefit of listening to this live, there will be on this actual podcast a longer conversation with Alex Kungu, who covers the Celtics, where uh, we'll get a little bit more in-depth into this discussion. Let's get to this next question from... Reply guy, if the Clippers advance, is there a good reason that you think the small brawl approach that has worked so well against the Mavs will or won't be effective against Utah? Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this question just because I'm recording this as this game is going on. And as always, if you have any questions live, send them here. If you want to talk about Mavs Clippers as it's happening in this second quarter right now, if you want to talk about Hawks Sixers, the game we just watched, you are free to throw in a speaker request, throw it in the chat. But the Clippers small ball approach is interesting. We, when people look at the Jazz, they they remember what happened in that series against the Rockets. I think was that 2019. I, I've lost all sense of time. It was really like a three or four game stretch where it was just, it looked like a struggle for Utah. They were eventually able to adjust. I also don't think that the Clippers small ball lineup is as dangerous as that extreme because you're looking at Marcus Morris as your five there, essentially. He is not proven consistent enough on either end of the floor and certainly isn't consistent enough on defense, I think, to make it as big of a problem. I don't know that I would necessarily give the Jazz the edge full on in that series, but I think when you look at this Jekyll and Hyde act, the, the Clippers have transpired. If we end up seeing Clippers Jazz, uh, I, I think my instinct would be to go with the Jazz there, and I wouldn't worry if I'm Utah too much about their small ball approach. I think just given their personnel, Rudy Gobert could hang in a lot of different um you know, different switching situations there. And, or there just might be guys that he's able to leave when you're looking at some of their other small ball lineups, because he's not going to be the primary on a Paul George or a, you know, a, a Kawhi Leonard. Maybe they just live with, uh, is, is Rondo a part of that unit is Reggie Jackson. Who's played, um, had some really good spurts this year in that unit. Do you just say, Hey, we'll live with them shooting from the perimeter and Rudy Gobert will stick off of them and still go and drop. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to consider Mavs jazz, will be interesting too, because Dallas has tried to go like super big at points against the Clippers with Boban and Kristaps. I don't think you, I don't think that's going to fly at all against Utah. Although maybe the impetus there is like, we don't want to have Kristaps defend Rudy Gobert. So you want Boban on there. I think Kleba might be a better option even to defend um, Rudy Gobert on roles than, than Kristaps. I don't think Kristaps is a bad defender, by the way, for anyone listening to this. Um, and he can be, he's, he's a little bit twitchier in space than I think people will give him credit for, but he's just not looked right. I think he's at the point where he doesn't hurt your defense as opposed to he's probably not going to elevate it too much. If you need him to be a rim, rim protector, fine. But if you need him to do just a ton of things, I don't think he's going to be your guy in that situation. Next question comes from Aaron one, five, six. Are the Suns now your favorite to be the Western conference champion after beating the Lakers? This is not a flex because first of all, it's they, they're not the West champion yet, but I had the Suns coming out of the West. Initially, my picks were Sixers Suns in the finals. Uh, I have zero confidence in that prediction just overall, especially when you look at, you know, the Sixers lost game one to the Hawks, but also what is going to happen with Embiid played fantastic in that game, but 
I am scared shitless about his meniscus injury. I'm assuming the tear is just microscopically small. Otherwise, I don't know why he'd be playing and playing as much as he did in game one. But then there's also the matter of seeing the Nets without James Harden save for 43 seconds, just absolutely carving up the Bucs. And there was some coaching weirdness there with Mike Budenholzer. And then also the Bucs, you know, they didn't shoot well from three, but they also probably need to shoot more than 33s against the Nets because the math will eventually not work if all you're trying to do is attack the paint and you're not, you know, shooting a, a trillion percent at the the foul line. But I do have the, the sun still coming out of the West. I think I said at the beginning of the playoffs, I thought the winner of Lakers Suns was going to come out of the Western Conference in part because if the Lakers won that series, the implication for me was that, oh, they're healthier than we thought. LeBron is fantastic. Why would you bet against him at this point? And I did bet against him in um, Suns Lakers. They are, there's no gimme matchups here though. I would have them in six or seven against the Nuggets because I really think that Denver struggled with Portland's backcourt. And now you have CP3 and Devin Booker. Those are two, uh, you know, Damian Lillard better than both those guys right now. But I would say Devin Booker and Chris Paul are both better than CJ McCollum. The issue there is what's going to be up with CP3 shoulder. We've seen it impact him. He went, he got better as the, the Suns Lakers series went on, but can he take more three pointers? Can he hit those, you know, those, those pull up jumpers off his snakes? Uh, he's been great anyway, but if his shoulder is not at 75%, 80%, whatever, I don't even know how you ballpark a specific number by the way, but just as the estimation there, I don't know. I, I, I don't, that, that'll feel like a series that's destined to go seven still. And it'll even it up a little bit for Denver without Jamal Murray so interesting series. I do still have the Suns coming out of the the West. I think the matchup I'd be worried most about for them is even more so than the Lakers one is the the winner of if it's Jazz Clippers. I don't. I think they match up fairly well against the Mavs. Maybe that's a terrible take, uh, but I, I I think I'd be worried about them facing the Clippers or the Jazz more so than the Mavs um, or this upcoming Denver series. But there are no easy series in in the in the western conference i think as we've seen time and time again next question comes from gandalf Stormcrow. are the utah jazz the most disrespected one seed in nba history three all-stars defensive player of the year six man of the year runner-up six man of the year runner-up head coach of the year top five offense top five defense five guys that can go for 30 on any given night uh did we get the full results for coach of the year already that i missed uh, that Quinn Snyder was runner up. I don't think they've announced that yet. They announced the, the coaches association one, but anyway, top three, Quinn Snyder is a top three coach of the year candidate. Uh, Rudy Gobert is going to win defensive player of the year. Uh, yeah, I do think they're, I don't know if they're the most disrespected number one seed in history. I, you know, I've, I've only been alive for a finite amount of time there, Gandalf. So they've definitely been disrespected though, because I think the, it, everyone's been mentioning the nets. They've been mentioning the bucks, They've mentioned the Sixers. They were mentioning the Lakers beforehand. I think the Suns have finally come onto people's radars. Everyone wants to talk about the Clippers. People are talking about the Mavs more now because they thought that this would not necessarily be a repeat of last year. And it turns out the Mavs, even though they lack that secondary shot creator, uh, they've made the they they gave the Clippers a, a ridiculously difficult time. The Jazz need to be up there. They were the best regular season team. I don't understand the sentiment that Rudy Gobert is going to get played off the floor or their offense isn't going to you know, hold up in the playoffs. These are just outmoded takes that one, the Rudy Gobert stuff, I still don't think was ever accurate. It was, it wasn't even a matter of one specific team that no longer exists. The jazz figured out a way to keep him on the floor by the end of that series. It was just too little too late. 
So that has always just been a a mistaken narrative to me anyway. And then the offense is just like, this isn't circa two or three years ago when it was only Donovan Mitchell. They have all these other shot creators in Mike Conley, Boyan Bogdanovich, Jordan Clarkson, Joe Ingles. And so maybe you want their second best shot creator to be better than any of those guys. One, Mike Conley would like a word with you if you think that, FYI. I think I'd like a word with you too. Been outstanding. He really just, how anti-poetic i guess of him just absolutely throttling the the memphis grizzlies at times in the first round but anyway even when the jazz offense wasn't holding up and i think you know mitchell having kind of a rough go his first two postseason campaigns i would say certainly at least one of those wasn't great he was just overtaxed and yet the jazz as a team were still creating these high quality looks it was just a matter of they didn't necessarily have as many guys that can knock them down again that's where boyan Bogdanovich and mike conley help you a ton and then jordan clarkson of course uh, but it was also just the one shot creator. And now you have a bunch, I would say two actually top level ones in Conley and Donovan Mitchell. And then you have legitimate secondaries in Joe Ingles has always been one, but overstretched if you want him to be more than that. And now you're, you have Boyan Bogdanovich and Jordan Clarkson there. Even when he's not necessarily hitting his shots, the, the pressure that he puts on defenses to defend him is absolutely huge. So yes, Gandalf, Storm Crow. The Jazz are disrespected. I would say they are the most disrespected first seed in like at least a decade, maybe two decades. I don't know if I would say in NBA history, but that's probably a conversation to go back and look at. They are a title contender. My co-host, Adam Frommel, again, a trader who's not here today, picked them to win it all. And it's I don't agree with him, but it's a legitimate pick because the Jazz are really freaking good. Next question comes from Mile High Core 4. When will the MVP award be announced? I honestly couldn't tell you at this point. It looked like they were rolling them out when they were announcing sixth man, but then we haven't heard anything and, and most improved player, obviously, but we haven't heard anything since about the other stuff. They were normally announcing it towards the, I think it was the end of the playoffs, like right before the finals, or maybe even after the fact they were trying to make the award show happen at one point too. Um, I couldn't tell you. It'll probably be the last award that's announced, though. And so by my estimation, we still have Rookie of the Year, Coach of the Year. I don't think – they don't really make a big to-do about Executive of the Year, but we have that. We have Defensive Player of the Year and then, of course, MVP. So I wish I could could tell you, but I, I honestly cannot. All I can tell you is that Nikola Jokic is going to win in a mother-effing landslide. Next question comes from Jeremy Tanner Allen. Who has a better chance against the Nets, the Suns or Jazz? I'm assuming that Jeremy's assuming the Nets make it to the finals, and then it'll be the Suns or the Jazz in the finals as well. That's a great question. I think I'm going to go with Phoenix there. I could see some of the Nets small ball units giving the, the Jazz some fits when you look at having Jeff Green at the five or when it's KD is kind of at the five, but he's really not because it's Bruce Brown at the five. And then I don't know that the Jazz had the same type of individual wing defense. Well, it's not that I don't know. They definitely don't have the same type of individual wing defenders. When you look at Phoenix, they have Jay Crowder and Mikael Bridges. Gives you a lot of different options to use with those two guys. And no, are you going to stop the big three in full? Of course not. But CP3 might be able to steal some minutes against Harden under a Kyrie for you. And then again, you have Jay Crowder, you have Mikael Bridges to, to help out in those situations. I would expect to see... Probably Jay Crowder on KD, or maybe that's Mikhail there, just because KD's not like super strong, so you don't need the burliness of Jay Crowder. He's probably better off against Harden there. And then 
yeah, it does get interesting when you're looking at, okay, what happens with Kyrie if we're as the odd man out? CP3 can help you there for a little bit if he's healthy. They do have Tory Craig that they could unbutton for for that matchup. I like the Suns better, though, just because they have those defensive options, whereas with the Jazz, it's like, okay, Royce O'Neal will go up against one of those three guys. How are you divvying up the rest of those defensive responsibilities? I I honestly just don't know what you do. And so that's really going to push, excuse me, as I yawn, Joe Ingles and Boyan Bogdanovich to, to their defensive limits. And if you get in a situation where you, you know, Donovan Mitchell and Mike, Mike Conley are, are defending some of those guys, Harden and Kyrie specifically, that's just tough. I mean, maybe Conley can help you in some of those in- instances. I think Donovan Mitchell will be overmatched a ton against both of those guys. I'm starting to see why, and I always saw, but I get why people just assume the Nets are going to the finals. Watching them against the the Bucks in game one. James Harden goes down with a hamstring injury. Kyrie and KD combined to shoot abysmal, abysmally from three, and they just still roll over them. I know that the Bucks are just, you know, there are things that they're going to have to change as well, but my God, I get, I, I've always gotten why the Nets are scary. Whenever you watch them have one of those games, those nights, those extended string of moments, it gets really hard to envision anyone beating them four times in seven tries. That being said, I will not back off my Bucks over Nets pick. And if the Sixers, for some reason, make it out against the Hawks, I will pick them over the Nets, too, if Joel Embiid is playing. Uh, that is you know, subject to change with more information, of course. But uh, Nets are scary. Just don't think that they're uh, – I think that they would be able to make mincemeat more so of the Jazz defense than they would of Phoenix's defense, which is wild to say about the best defense in the NBA. I just don't know – as well as Rudy Gobert can hold up in switches. If your primary guy is best suited in these drop situations, a lot of teams are built to carve that up, but the Nets specifically might be able to kill you. And I think we saw, look at Embiid versus Trey Young in game one. Uh, the Sixers eventually put you know a ton of pressure on him, so that changed the, the calculus of you know the defensive matchups in that situation. But you saw Trey Young killing the Sixers with floaters early on or, or passes and lobs because of that's the, how reliant you are on, on the drop. And Joel Embiid didn't really seem to know how to react in that situation. Rudy Gobert will be going through a lot of the same stuff, I imagine. This question also comes from, and it will be our final one. Like I said, if anyone has any questions in the room, feel free to ask it. But it will be our final one because I said I was going to keep this shorter. Aaron156 asks, again, people always criticize Coach Bud for not playing Middleton, Drew, Giannis for 40-plus minutes. Do you think this is the main reason that they lost to the Hardenless Nets? I don't think that's the the main reason that they lost. They shot 5 of 30, I think it was, from 3. That's a big reason why they lost. Uh, I, I don't understand the minutes distributions necessarily, where it feels like some games he's trying to steal too many minutes with bench players, like he's saving his guys for the fourth quarter, but you could put yourself in a situation where the game gets away before that. Uh, I would say that in a closer game, because this wasn't close, and that's what really messes this up, is that they lose 115 to 107. That that score is closer than the game actually was. Giannis playing over 35 minutes, Middleton over 36, Drew over 36. It's like kind of... It's shocking they even got that high is my point because that's how far away the game was. I don't think that's the main reason why they would lose, but this is the playoffs. You guys have committed to this championship timeline. I would say that all three of those guys are capable of giving you 38 to 42 minutes, maybe not every single night if you're that worried about it, but you're willing to play PJ Tucker 28 minutes. He shouldn't be logging just seven fewer minutes than Giannis 
would be my argument. And also 14 minutes of Jeff Teague is 14 minutes too much of Jeff Teague in this scenario. And when you're looking at even Bryn Forbes and his 22 minutes, as he was getting carved up on defense and was not making his shots. His confidence remains aspirational. I want to make that clear, but uh, you need to play them more. I don't think that's the main reason that they lost. Again, they were uh, six of 30 from three. So I apologize for speaking. They didn't really get to the foul line. They were 11 of 19 when they were there. And so you look at that and the nets were from three point range alone were plus 27. And then they're also, you know, they actually only had not, they, the bucks won the free throw competition, but they did leave a ton of points on the board. And they were just like that team for what they are, knowing how small that the nets are playing you would like to see a situation where uh, the Bucks are controlling the glass even more. I know that they had 15 offensive rebounds, but still, you're, you want to be able to try and beat up on some of these lineups that Brooklyn is running out there. And it's not going to get easier because, as Aaron mentioned, James Harden didn't play that game. And as I mentioned already at the top, like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving combined to shoot 4-15 from 3. How much do you bank on that? Moral of the story there, though, is I think while attacking the rim against Brooklyn is important and making sure you're out in transition, too, uh, you, you need to – the three-point shooting is going to be huge in this series because the Nets are built to – they don't always focus on necessarily three-point shooting, but like they're built to make a ton of them even when their best guys aren't hitting them at the highest clips. Joe Harris, 5 of 9. Blake, uh, Blake Griffin, excuse me, had his moment going 4 of 9 from deep. You're going to want to keep up with that. And also, as I'm recording this, James Harden is going to be out for Game 2 against the the Bucks. Nets was announced by Sham Sharani. I'm assuming the team announced it and that it's not per him. But anyways, so that gives the Bucks an opportunity to make up for this. The other thing that I think maybe wasn't, talked about enough but like this very much looked like a team that hadn't played in basically a week when you were watching the bucks the pace was so frenetic through like the first quarter maybe and then it felt like all of a sudden ramping it up got to them a little bit so let's see what adjustments coach bud makes in game two as this series goes on he has made adjustments throughout the year. We saw the Bucks switch more, so more of Giannis as the screener, even if it was as a decoy, not necessarily as a finisher. Had guys stashed in the dunker spot. They ran more zone this year than they did last year, statistically. He has made adjustments, but their bench is shallow, and I don't think that you could rely on it that much, especially when Dante DiVincenzo is out. When those Dante DiVincenzo minutes are becoming more Jeff Teague slash Pat Connaughton slash Bryn Forbes minutes, no, you're not getting the same defensive oomph from, from any of those guys. I would like to see, I didn't look up the data because I was only half paying attention to this game when it got out of hand. Um, but I was not very, this is to say, not very locked in by the fourth quarter of it. I would like to see them maybe explore going even smaller because you had Brooke Lopez playing, you know, 28 minutes and then you had Bobby Portis. He ended up with 17. And so that's 45 minutes of the game with a quote unquote traditional big see give the Giannis and PJ Tucker front line just run at this point I know it's maybe a little bit harder without Dante DiVincenzo there but you have Giannis you have Tucker you have Holiday and Middleton finding the fifth is tough and so I get why you maybe wouldn't lean on that as much just give it a shot if it's Connaughton if it's Bryn Forbes I guess it should probably be Connaughton in that situation I honestly don't know that might just be something for them to go to because even if the Nets have Nicholas Claxton on the court, like they're not big. We even saw it with like they had the the Blake Griffin Bruce Brown lineup. Like that's not a traditional sized French court. Uh, French court. Wow, front court. You could get away with going small in those scenarios. So those are things that I'm looking for. It'll be interesting to see how 
if at all he adjusts his rotation. I will say his options are limited here. Just is, yeah, I think the the obvious answer is to play your stars more minutes because you are so shallow. But if you're looking to keep guys within certain limits where you don't trust Lopez or Tucker to give you 30 plus in this series, then yeah, you're getting into some you know, some thorniness because you're running out of bodies at that point. And do you want to be at a, a point where you're relying on Tanasis Tentacumpo in this? I, I would argue no. And so that's where the, the absence of Dante DiVincenzo is huge. But it was one game, and they are catching a break, I think, without James Harden in game two. And that should make things easier. And, and look, hamstrings are fickle. He missed 20-something games with it, I believe, already. Had it didn't really have much of a ramp up before the playoffs. It wouldn't surprise me if he misses a little bit more time. If they win game two, I'll almost guarantee you that he's not playing in game three because why risk it? But the Bucks get a little bit lucky there. Let's let's see how they adjust. That's all I got for you, though. Thank you, everyone who came in and out of the room. Thank you, Noah, as always, for coming on to speak. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the, for anyone listening to this later, I hope you enjoyed the Celtics uh, conversation that I had with Alex Kungu. That was great to talk to him, as always. Until next time, I leave you with a shout-out to the one. The only. The recruitment is underway. Damian Lillard.